You're listening to Savage Wonder, which is a podcast about warriors and artists. It's long-form one-on-one conversations with people who have a foot in the world of the artist and a foot in the world of the warrior. It's produced by the Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a creative hub for talented veterans and world-class performers to create compelling live theater and events. So last week, you guys listened to part one of my interview with Roman Baca. Roman, just to remind you, is a classically trained ballet dancer and choreographer, but in 2001, he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps, where he served as a machine gunner and fire team leader, up until and including his time in Fallujah, Iraq in 2005. So we know, and you guys remember from last week when I read his bio, that Roman will go on to found the Exit 12 Dance Company which tells veteran stories choreographically, as well as a ton of other projects and lines of effort that he dives into in the ensuing years. But where we left off in part one was Rahman had just finished his deployment to Fallujah. So if you haven't heard that yet, by all means, go back and listen to that episode. But if you're up to speed, we will pick it up from there as he returns from Fallujah. And we will get the rest of the story of Ramon Baca. So I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the artistic director of Vet Rep. And this is part two of the Savage Wonder of Ramon Baca. Let's pick it up from where we left off then. So yeah, we just got absolutely. you out of Fallujah. You're coming back from Iraq. And I guess let's first just start by putting you on the plane back from Iraq. Where's your head at? How are you feeling as you're leaving country? Just give us up. Where's your head at? Where are you at in terms of assessing your life, your career, your prospects? Are you um, obviously, you're relieved probably to be leaving, but wh- where are you emotionally at that point? Do you feel like there's been an indelible imprint that's been left on you? Like you're different than how you were before you got there? Just where are you? It was it was so interesting because we we had made such an impact on several people when we were there, and we were we were elated. I was elated to go back. Like as soon as we got that note that we were leaving everybody got excited um a little relieved uh you know it was during all the time when the army was getting stop lost and you know how rumors go and how things just get into your head of like oh man we're gonna get extended but we didn't um it was kind of sad to leave some of the translators that we had developed a quite a close relationship with um and knowing that they were being left to, you know, the, the, the violence that was continuing to happen, especially sure. towards people that were helping the U.S. So on one hand, you know, there was this little twinge of like, oh, we didn't get everything accomplished. Um, but on the other hand, it was like, yeah, let's, let's, let's go home. Um, the unit, so I was about a year um we got back in 2007 my contract ended in 2008 um and there was because we were cross-trained as machine gunners there was an option to stay in and actually go to uh machine gun school and get the 
actual MOS. Mm-hmm. And a lot of guys were doing it because of the sign-on bonus. And I was like, um, no, I think I'm going to go and like get on with my life. And, you know, right before I left, I had landed a pretty good job uh, working as a draftsman for a company in Connecticut mm-hmm. that was paying really well. Um, the It was a family uh, business. So everyone was really close. The owners were really cool. Um, they like stayed in contact while I was in country. And so I was like, well, you know, I, I'm landing into this cushy job. Might as well just do it. Yeah. Embrace it. Um, and you know, all those things that like, when you come back from war, it's supposed to be this like amazing pivotal moment in life where right. it's like, you take that war experience, you internalize it and then you go and you know, using like the greatest generation as an example, you go and do like the most incredible things you could ever imagine. Right. Right. And so I didn't go that big, but I felt like I should probably like, you know, get a responsible job. I should probably try and like do what responsible people do and get a house of some sort. So I started looking for like some place to live. Um, cause I had my combat pay as a down payment. Um, and then, uh, you know, my girlfriend and I started getting more and more serious and I was like, I should probably settle down and like, think about starting a family or something like that. And so I kind of jumped in with both feet and, you know, buckled down on my job and ended up buying a condo because, um, you know, combat pay can't afford a house. Right, so sure, sure. I, bought a, I bought a condo. Um, and I, you know, me and my girlfriend started getting more serious. Um, yeah. And so this is all what the first six months that you're back, what timeline, what, how, yeah, that's where about are you? First six okay. months. Right. And, you know, it's, it's weird. Like it seems so, it seems cliche, but you know, there was all of these things that were, kind of residuals from serving in Iraq for so long and being so high tempo, like I would get super pissed off going and like sitting in traffic and getting cut off or, you know, um, walking around New York city. Cause me and my wife were still going to New York city sometimes. Um, and just like wanting to bump full on into people cause they weren't watching out for you. And sure. Um, and then thinking that like this way of being professional in the military of being aggressive of, you know, being very um, kind of confident in a professional sense could easily transition to a professional sense in the real world, which it didn't. You know, was that and was that different for you? Had you so you hadn't kind of internalized any of that prior to Iraq? You came back. Not as, now that was a new character trait. Not as big as Iraq. Like it was. Okay. You know, there was always something weird that the that military training or being at drill did. Like, I remember employees, employers before were like, can you stop saying Roger? Just just say yes. You know, it's like stupid, stupid stuff like that. But it wasn't until coming back from Fallujah that like I was I was like, you know, I'm going to make a good effort at this job. And so I'm going to be aggressive and I'm going to be like confident and you know, have this get it done attitude. And a lot of my supervisors took that wrong. 
you know, they took it as me being pissed off at them or not liking them or, you know, it was a way of being that just didn't, didn't work. And it took a little while for me to figure that out. So is it safe to say that this was your, your way of living the straight non-artist life? Right. You're like, oh, okay. So this is what normal's supposed to look like. And this is how one goes about doing it. And I now have this bedrock of military experience, which is let's see how well that sets me up for success. So here I go. That I'm launching right off. Right. That's a great that's the perfect way of putting it. You and, know, I thought I had I I had put the ballet shoes on the shelf. Yeah. And the artist's life on the shelf. And you know, I was gonna go real responsible life. And would yeah, for those of you in the podcast, that was air quotes. <laughs> that was air quotes there. Um, <laughs> if you would ask yourself or if you had taken, if you took any moments uh, during that time, how did you think about your life as a dancer in those moments? Were you like, okay, so I've grown out of that or were you repressing it? Like, how would you categorize how you had thought of that first part of your life now that you were making this gear shift? For me, it was that I had tried it. I had given it my best go. Okay. And that it wasn't it wasn't providing the future that I thought I wanted. And so I needed to find another way to kind of work towards that future. Was there resentment towards the arts, towards like kind of like, all right, hey, I gave that a shot and look what I all I got was this damn t-shirt, you know, kind of that sense, or was it was it like no, I'm satisfied. I, I did all I could. It just didn't work out. And, and you're at peace with it. And you're just ready to move on. I mean, I, I think, I don't think I was at peace with it. I think it was something I still wanted, but I, I also knew that like, there were things that I was deficient in, especially like being away for a year and, and not, you know, and kind of splitting my interests in both dance in the military and i you know not following a traditional path to something so there was responsibility that i knew lay in my corner as well and so i didn't necessarily feel resentment i just felt it was time to you know i i felt i had i had checked that box in my life and it was time mm. to be responsible okay um and I use, I use the term responsible because that's how I thought about it at the time. Sure. I felt, you know, again, coming back from war, it, everybody you talk about it is this big pivotal thing where, you know, men grow up and boys become men. And, and I was like, okay, well, I'll just follow that example and let's, let's have a go at it. I meant to ask um, when you mentioned it before, but had your unit, did you guys lose people um, over there? Was there any of that that was weighing on you? We lost two people in the battalion. Okay. Um, they, a um, one of the one of the vehicles that was on patrol uh, at night flipped into the canal, and if you can imagine trying to get uh, Marines, especially a gunner and a driver, out of uh, upside down Humvee in, in a canal, it's virtually impossible. And so we lost two in the battalion. Um, we had our share of uh, injuries as well. Um, we had a couple guys get sent home for one injury or the other. Um, 
And then we had one driver who was in another squad uh, have a vehicle accident on patrol at night. And they were kind of shake, shaken up pretty badly. But other than that, we came home pretty, pretty unscathed. Relatively intact. Um, yeah. How did you, and I, I just want to dwell on this just for a second, if you don't mind. I want to know how you were, um, how you internalized combat and how you internalized actually doing your job as a Marine in Fallujah at that point. Were there moments that you looked around and got, oh, I had to pinch yourself and go, I can't believe I'm the same person that I was, you know, a year ago. I can't believe this is the same human being that's now doing this. Or um, did you feel like a fish out of water? Were you a square peg in a round hole? Just how are you feeling now being completely immersed in that environment? Obviously, there was a lot of peer pressure and you have all the support system that makes you start to get, quote unquote, practical when you get out of the military. But during those seminal moments there, was there any sense that you were making an identity shift? I think um, there were in. I mean, who, whose identity doesn't shift when you're kind of exposed to that in such a, in such a large way with so much responsibility, not only personal responsibility, but responsibility for other Marines and responsibility for the mission. And then trying to make sense of everything you're seeing on a daily basis, you know, whether it's, you know, mortars that are coming in indiscriminately and, you know, destroying things on base or killing people or, you know, the, the medevac flights that were coming in, you know, all hours of the day from um, various points in our area of operations or trying to make sense of like the locals and the people around and like being a person like me who wants to get to know people, wants to get to know their story and like loves chatting with people and just knowing like how they do what they do, why they do what they do. Mm. And, and only having that outlet through like other Marines or other like assets on base that we're working with or through our interpreters, you know, learning a little bit about the interpreters and what they do. But like for the people in um, the people in the villages, we'd roll through these villages every day. And I'm like, how do these people live? Like, yeah. there's no like, it's not a, a village like we would call a village with like businesses and stores. Um, not there weren't very many cars in the area so i'm like how do they get their food how do they make a living like how what is it why do they still live like right next to this huge marine base like it just didn't and so there was this kind of shift a little bit in like you said identity for me but there was also this kind of um all of these questions that started coming up because of like so now you're getting normal in Connecticut, right? And, <laughs> and uh, I'm guessing that the seeds of discontent were there and started to blossom slowly. Yeah. And I, you know, this is going to sound like a broken record because I've told this story, but, you know, I didn't see it. I, I was living my life. I was, you know, working my nine to five, having a good time, going out with a beer for the, with the buds. Um, you know, somewhere along the line, I bought a motorcycle and I was, you know, mm -hmm. riding fast and hard on my motorcycle and, um, having a good time. 
and working hard at my job. And I was out to do what I needed to do to become successful in something. And, and it wasn't until my girlfriend, who's now my wife, sat me down and, you know, wanted to have a come to Jesus moment. She's like, something's not right. And off the bat, because of childhood, I thought like, she's going to be like, I'm done. This is mm. not working. I'm gone, you know? So I'm sitting down kind of expecting the worst. And she was like, you know, you're not the same person as you were before you left. She's like, before you went to war, you were this happy-go-lucky guy who was mm. sucking the marrow out of life. And now, like, you're anxious, you're depressed, you're angry and easy to anger. And she said, you know, you're making you're making a lot of people afraid of you in the, in the way you're carrying yourself. And, you know, one of the examples is like the way I would deal with my supervisor, you know, just very, very aggressive and, and confident. And because I thought that was how, you know, people communicated or successful people communicated. Yeah. No, no. I was going to say, so was that all you needed? Was it just that one talk and that changed everything around for you? Or is that kind oh, God, of the no. first? Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like knocking over a Coke machine, right? You got to yeah, take yeah. a couple of cracks at it. Okay. You know, and she had that talk, but like, instead of, instead of it being one of those talks where it's like, this is all the stuff that's wrong. And then like, she leaves, it was like, here's all the stuff that I'm noticing. What are we going to do about it? Like, mm. what, what, what can we change? And she's like, if you could do anything in the world, and you didn't have to worry about money. You didn't have to worry about like responsibility and you could actually make a choice. Like, what would you do? And I just remember telling her I'd start a dance company. Huh. Um, you know, I had, I had dabbled in choreography my whole career. Um, I had taught some, um, I had put a couple things on stage that I thought were kind of interesting at least. And you know, I, I kind of, ex, I kind of expected her to do one of two things, either be like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting or to be like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what you're going to do Bye. Um, I don't know if I mentioned, but she's a ballerina as well. She I was, was going to ask. For, okay. All right. She was dancing for a company in Connecticut professionally at the time. And so, you know, I, I don't know. I just felt that pull back to the studio and then like thinking about the stuff that me and Joe, my Marine buddy in Iraq were talking about in terms of performance and the things that my mentor over at the nutmeg had told me about choreographing my experiences. I was like, maybe I should just step into the studio. Maybe it would be interesting to kind of go back into the studio. And so she went to her company and asked a couple of the dancers if they would come and try some of her board boyfriend's choreography she said i don't know it could be crap but you know um do you want to come and try and one uh one young lady uh who's a dear friend of hers said yeah let's do it and so that's when we started renting studio space at steps on broadway really? that was the first place we rented space wow. and just started like throwing some steps together with a couple of dancers 
So talk to me about the process um, in general. How to, If you're just a normal dancer that doesn't go off to Fallujah in the middle of your career, how do you get into choreography? How do you actually go about choreographing things? Because I'm imagining before you actually have people in front of you, it's all in your mind and you're just kind of doing stuff in the mirror. What, what is that actual process supposed to look like? Um, one of two ways. I, you know, well, one of many ways, but the kind of popular way of doing it is a dancer will dance for a dance company. And then a lot of times they'll ask their friends in the company to stay a couple hours afterwards because they want to choreograph something. Mm, okay. um, they'll put something together and, you know, either the artistic director will walk by and see it, or they'll invite people to come and see it. Um, other choreographers in New York specifically will just bring dancers together, rent studio space, and then start performing in showcases. Um, and specifically showcases where people are invited to come and see your choreography. Mm. Um, the most career solidifying way is the previous one where you're already employed as a dancer and you're bringing in professional dancers to kind of shape your work. And is the way that it normally works for a company that you have one choreographer per company? So it's kind of like the artistic director of a theater, or it's kind of like uh, you know the director of a movie, like there's one. So if you're coming up as a choreographer, it's really even professionally, it's as an eye to go start your own company and do your own choreography. Is that right? Usually companies will have um, an artistic director. Okay. And that artistic director will kind of decide on the artistic direction of the company, like what choreographers are working, what type of work they're producing. Um, and then a, a large ballet company will have a resident choreographer who's somebody who's employed by the company who they can call upon over and over and over again to choreograph something, or they bring in like guest choreographers. Okay. From so outside. So for you now, well, first let's get back to, to how this was going. So when you start to have this choreography fermenting in your mind, how, what does that look like? How do you actually start to affect that? I just started putting ballet steps together in what's called a neoclassical way. So if you think of the choreographers like Balanchine or William Forsyth, where they've taken classical ballet and they've made it more flexible and more dynamic and more risky and off balance. Um, it's called neoclassical. It's approaching like a contemporary way of doing ballet. And so I just started, you know, watching contemporary choreographers and putting stuff together in the studio. Um, I looked at it a lot like poetry. Mm. So with poetry, you know, you'll take words, you'll play with words, you'll play with structure, you'll play with format, and you'll come up with a poem. And choreography is, to me, kind of the same thing. You know all of these steps in a vocabulary of movement, and then you just kind of try out these steps in either different organizations, different patterns, um, also playing with the steps themselves to make them interesting. Mm. Um, and so I choreographed this, this duet that I called Amusing, um, and it was conceptually based upon butterflies because I had back then I had this kind of thing that every time things were going shit um, and I would kind of take those moments out to kind of think about the world 
a butterfly would fly by and I'd be like, hey, I can't mm. be that bad. Like butterflies are still around. Mm. So I choreographed this like contemporary ballet about butterflies. So there was no, so this was not like therapy for war. This was, you weren't getting into the Marine thing yet or your combat experience. This was just, I want to do dance writ large and, and I'm just going to see what ideas come to me. Yeah. Okay. And like, how, how do I make a go of this? Like if I'm going to, I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but if I'm going to do something, I might as well go all in. Yeah. Um, I sent my, like I sent an email out to just about every dance company and dance school in uh, Connecticut and New York <laughs> being like, Hey, you know, and I, I just looked up this email a couple of weeks ago because I was telling someone else's story and I couldn't imagine an artistic director getting this email. It was basically like, Hey, I'm a Marine who just got back from Fallujah, Iraq. And I used to be a dancer, but now I want to get back into dance. And so I was wondering if you had a teaching position at your studio so I could come and teach ballet so that I could kind of get back into the throes of, of dance. And I'm paraphrasing this email, of course. But That's hilarious. Did you get any responses? I got one. And how did that From work out? All of the emails I, I sent out, I got one. Okay. It was this little, it was this ballet company in um, central Connecticut, West Hartford. And they offered me one class on a, on a Friday night, like late Friday night, um, intermediate dancers. And so I was like, okay, like um, I was already like driving a half an hour to get to my day job as a drafts person. So then on Fridays, I would drive an hour and 15 minutes east and teach. And then I would drive another half an hour to get back to where I was living. Um, and they thought it was pretty funny because I think the first time I showed up, I showed up on my motorcycle. So all the dancers are like, who's this like guy coming to teach ballet on a motorcycle, just bringing his helmet into the studio and then like doing crazy things. Did they know you were a Marine? Was that publicized or was that just between you and the artistic director for the most part? I think I would, I would tell people okay. because I wanted, I don't know. I just like, again, it was, it was pivotal. So I thought it was at the time I thought it was important. Yeah. And it's good so, leverage. It, it kind of explains, yeah. say, this is why <laughs> I might be a you know step or two behind everybody is right. You know, you had a little yeah. bit of a detour. What, who is it that you're teaching? Is it is it adults when they're the intermediate dancers? These uh, are, are we talking eleven year olds or adults or who is it? Upper level teenagers. So the first class okay. I had was their intermediate advanced class, and so all of the young ladies were like, um, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. Okay. And um, how how do they respond to you? Um. I think that very first class, it was a little, I don't want to say it was rough, but it was a little difficult to kind of get on their good side um, because, you know, they were used to a certain teacher. They were used to a certain way of being taught. I didn't have the muscle memory or the experience or the recent experience to be like, all right, let's go do a class, you know? So I was yeah. still kind of, I still had the training wheels on. 
in, in kind of a certain sense. And so the first class went okay, um, but I stayed with that company for 10 years. Wow. And um, this, like the second and third class, we ended up getting like newer students in. And I started kind of developing a vision for not only what I wanted class to look like, but I, how I wanted these dancers to develop. Um, you know, like we were talking about before, they, I, I felt they weren't jumping high enough. They, you know, needed some, some strength conditioning. And so every chance I got, I, I made it a point to like <laughs> give them a little bit of Marine training to make them stronger. And uh, for you, a while I would, sorry, go ahead. For a while I would like, when they were talking, I'd be like, all right, no more talking. <laughs> if you talk 10 pushups and I thought they would hate, you know, doing the pushups. So they'd stop talking in, in contrast, they enjoyed doing the pushups. And so they didn't mind it. Would and keep so they talk more. <laughs> yeah. And it just derailed class anyway. But is this where you started to experiment then with like kettlebells and all that stuff and bringing in yes. strength training? Okay. Yeah. And what was this doing for you? Um, initially, what was it doing for you for your choreography? So it was this, had you already developed butterflies in your mind or was, or was this, you know, it was that the genesis of it in the class. So aside from working at this, at this dance company, like I'm still going into New York as much as I can to work with, um, the professional dancers, the two professional dancers that I was working with my, my girlfriend and her friend. And we got a, we got an opportunity to perform it at this benefit for um, a children's hospital in New York state, Hudson Valley. And so we kind of, it was our, one of our first performances. We took the the dancers out there and did the performance. Um, And we got the video of that. And I started looking intern like around the U S for choreography competitions so that I could start like, getting people looking at my choreography and hopefully getting to do choreography other places. One of the most prominent choreography competitions at the time was at Ballet Austin, a professional Mm. ballet company in Austin, Texas. And I sent a piece of choreography to them for like two years. So filled out the application. Wow. um, Did the piece of choreography, sent it out to them. And all of the choreography competitions I sent stuff, well, sent amusing to, um, nothing happened, like no response, nothing. And so I sent all of them, of course, a follow-up email again, aggressive, right. Confident, right. Which works um, to your advantage here. Cause you need that persistent. persistence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And ballet Austin responded and I said, Hey, um, you know, I, I know this is probably not the best piece of choreography. I'm still kind of learning. Um, but happy for any feedback you may have, because I really want to do this. I really want to get into this. And I got a personal response from their artistic director, Stephen Mills. And he said, um, I have three pieces of advice for you. It's like, my first piece of advice is hire the best dancers you can for your choreography, because your choreography is only as good as the dancers who dance it. Second piece of advice, when you film it, make sure you're filming it in a high quality way 
Because again, if we can't see your choreography or if it's not done in a way that presents it well, then it's not going to be judged very well on the other end. And those were all well and good. I, I think they were more kind of technical aspects of choreography, but the one piece of advice that has stuck with me since he said, you have to find your voice. You have to find that one thing within you that is aching to come out that only you can talk about. And for me, wow. I took a step back and I was like, well, this thing that's aching to come out is all these experiences that went, that happened in Iraq. So at that point, do you jettison what you'd been working on or did you keep doing it, but concurrently you start to develop other stuff? Like where did, what, what did that make you do? So artistically, I just, oh, well, professionally, I just kept going on the same track. I'm still okay. doing the nine to five job, mm -hmm. still taking the train into New York city, getting home late at night, doing the whole thing, you know, wash, rinse, repeat. Right. Um, and still going out to ballet theater in West Hartford and teaching on a Friday night. The one thing that changed though, was um, often you'll find choreographers that like start with an idea and that idea doesn't work. And so they'll take all of that material for that idea and they'll smash it into another idea. And I was like, well, I like this choreography that I had come up with. I, the concept was kind of weak. Let's take all of this material and just start creating something new. And so I took all of the material that I had created for that piece and started creating a new piece um, about the military. And I think, and I did just about everything I could possibly think of to, to make this as real as possible for the audience. Um, I created a soundscape. So I juxtaposed a Schumann piano concerto with um, kind of makeshift radio traffic huh. and uh, put the Arabic call to prayer at the very beginning of the soundscape. Wow. So that for the audience, as they're coming in, the call to prayer is playing. Um, and it was an old one done by a very famous recording artist who put the sound of wind blowing um, behind the singing. So it was very evocative of the desert. Wow. And then it led into immediately like Marines on patrol, radio traffic, you know, like wow. Echo Ford Delta were, you know, head down. Uh, make sure you check your six, got your squad with you, blah, 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 blah. Um, I got two of my, I got my buddy from Fallujah to come in and record some of the radio traffic. Huh. Um, my roommate at the time, who was another dancer, came in and recorded a couple of the things as well. Um, chopped it up and then made it into this, like the radio traffic would fade out and it would fade into this like Schumann piano concerto for like the dancing bit when the Marines would like freeze or or all the Marines would freeze except for the one main character. And he'd kind of go around as the dancers were dancing and then it would fade out and it would go back into the radio traffic. Um, so the, so the soundscape was coming first that came before the moves. Is that right? It, it all happened at the same time. So I'd be working okay. on the soundscape when I wasn't in the studio, I'd be in the studio working on the moves. Okay. Um, and what came out of that was a 20 minute piece we called Habibi Halwa, which follows a Marine on patrol in kind of the boring moments 
and then he steps on either a landmine or an IED gets blown up. Um, and then the last movement is like this dance between uh, him and life and death where life is pulling him to stay alive and death is pulling him, of course, um, to the other side. And it ends with like his buddy picking him up in that, you know, fireman's carry shoulder pose. Yeah. And then all the dancers kind of circling around with a, uh, a helo in night vision green projected on the screen in the back of the theater. And then you hear the the sound of the helo and then you hear like a nine line radio traffic yeah. going on as the kind of production ends. Was that the only projection they used or did you use projections throughout? <clears throat> um, sometimes I did. Uh, it it kind of developed as we took it different places and performed it. Um, the best way I, I would, I wanted to have this performed was with a lot of the, um, kind of stuff we filmed in Fallujah. Like, you know, when somebody would take their camera and just put it on a Humvee and you just yeah. like, zoom in by all the, all the mud huts and the buildings. And, and then you'd see, a, you know, a flash of like a 50 cal or a flash of like a Marine with like his, um, Wiley X glasses, his helmet and his like, right. right. Um, Shmiag over his face. And then it would like, the projections would kind of be, uh, an alternative the audience didn't want to watch what's going on on stage they could watch the productions they could listen to the music and then it kind of took the story along from there At, when you were done with it so uh, i'm gonna get a little biographical to make this point so i remember the first time i did stand i did a big stand-up show and afterwards uh this was decades ago but i remember my dad came up to me afterwards and was like how'd you think you did and i was like I did as well as I can at this point. It's not good, but it's the, it, it was absolutely the best I could possibly do right where I'm at, and I'm going to get better. Maybe I never did. Anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Did you feel the same way, though? Did you feel like, hey, this is I'm going to get better, but this is a good first solid step? Or did you feel like, holy shit, this is amazing, and this is really going to do a lot of stuff? What was your internal response to it what was your what, what was your assessment of it as a step on your creative path i don't know if you felt felt this way along your creative path but <clears throat> this was the first time i felt this feeling utterly scared shitless about something going on stage mm. because it was a little vulnerable um, it exposed um, things that I thought, things that I carried that I wanted to put on stage. And we're in New York City, like putting this performance on at little theaters in New York City, um, like iconic theaters, PS122. We did a performance mm -hmm. at PS122, the whole performance. Um, we went over to uh, movement research and did an, uh, an iteration of it. So the couple movements, not the whole thing. And so we're going to all these little showcases. And if you can imagine walking into these showcases with like me, my Marine buddy, who's going to play one of the Marines in the performance and four dancers. And we go into the dressing room. We're putting on tactical gear. 
Well, yeah. everybody else in the dressing room is putting on tutus and leotards yeah. and dance clothes. And so it was more of being scared shitless about yeah. what I was going to put on stage more so than my performance. And you also don't, uh, I'm going to put this in a negative way, but you kind of don't recover from that artistically. Like you're out there now as, Oh, the dancer, that's a Marine. Like that's, that's a big move. You're, you're no, you can't hide anymore of like, Oh yeah. And this is how Ramon Baca got to, you know, to do the nutcracker at Lincoln center, you know, from, it's just like, no, no, this is my thing now. And then you yeah. own it. Yeah. Yeah. I could and see And then, that. you know, we, I got a, I got a, I applied for a, a fellowship with a dance company in New York city that then let me set this on their dancers for a big performance at, um, the Ailey city group theater. So oh, wow. Alvin Ailey right. has a theater in their basement basically. Um, and it's one of the premier performance venues in New York city for dancers. Um, it's actually where I was sitting watching a performance where I thought of the beginning of Habibi Halawa, where huh. the call to prayer is playing. It's a completely black stage. And from the back of the house, two Marines start patrolling with prop M 16s with little laser light doesn't target designators on top of them. So the audience starts to see the little red dots on the cyclorama. Yeah. And then every once in a while they're like, <gasps> because they catch the Marine patrolling through the aisle out of the, now this was in 2009. Um, wow. How we were yeah. allowed to do this was <laughs> beyond me, Right. but we were, I mean, yeah, you know, they were M16s. I picked up from like Toys R Us and like put a, a no joke, like, like a laser red dot pointer on, on top yeah. with oh with a laser pointer eyes. that's hilarious wow <laughs> you know what I mean and um, I had this opportunity to choreograph it on this other company and now like the buildup is so much greater because now the deliverable is the, the deliverable itself is so much bigger like this is a huge com like a big company yeah. with a large following it's at a no joke theater um, there's three performances my ballet is going on every night. I'm working with like, get this. I'm working with a um, a professional ballerina uh, who's now a dear friend of mine who danced with English National Ballet and was trained at the Paris Paris wow. uh, Paris Opera. A South Korean Marine who is a ballet dancer. Um, really. And how we ended up in the same company, and he ended up playing my lead, so he knew everything wow. he needed to know to do it and then i had to sell like part of my fellowship was to sell like 55 tickets a show and i was like nobody knows who i am there's right. no way people are gonna buy like 55 tickets so i went to the uso and i donated a large amount of those tickets and i ended up sending like i i went on facebook and i was like hey like donate some money to send a veteran to the show. And so like I sent all my guys, I told my guys from my platoon, I was like, if you want to come see this, like I'll take care of your ticket, blah, 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 blah. Wow. And as it turns out, it was during fleet week in New York city. And so a couple of my guys came from my unit to the performance. And then uh, uh, like people from the ship 
showed up um, for some of the shows as well. Like, and then the fear factor like exploded out the top of my head when in their walk, in walk, like Navy sailors in their sailor uniforms or Marines in their dress blues to come and see the show. And I was like, Oh, now it's real. But even at that point to be doing this show at Alvin Ailey must've felt you must have had a bit more confidence that hey there's there's value here something's happening right i knew that we had elevated the fellowship allowed me to elevate certain things about the performance i now had a full costume complement i could do the costumes that i wanted um i now had a technical and professional backing of the theater of the mm-hmm. ballet company um i had ample rehearsal time Mm. So we were given quite a large um, schedule of rehearsals to prepare for the performance. And so I was able to work out a lot of like, I was able to tweak things that I wasn't able to tweak before because now we're, you know, before this we're rehearsing maybe once, maybe twice a week. Right. Right. Um, And how long had you been doing the shows at like PS 122 and all that before you got to Alvin Ailey? How long had that been in kind of getting workshopped and, and, you know, Ailey was Ailey was in 2009 so I was anywhere from like half a year to like nine months okay we were All just right. kicking it around the city but so that must have felt good though it must have felt like some validation for them to even be interested and offer that to you though no right the validation didn't come until I talked to them after the performance oh really okay yeah. and, and what was the what was the feedback you know I I was pacing my wife's like, why are you so anxious? And I was like, there's like real Marines here. Like, this isn't just a civilian audience that like, will kind of get it. These are guys who live this, you know? She's like, well, why don't you just go talk to them? And I was like, Oh, okay. And, um, you know, I walked out and I talked to the guys in dress blues first. And, you know, it was a, a staff sergeant and a sergeant from, from the ship. And they were like, you know, before you say anything, we, we were there, we, we were in Fallujah and you were there too. Right. And I was like, yeah, they're like, yeah, yeah, you got it, dude. Like, wow. And you know, the Navy, the Navy sailors wanted to take a picture with me. And then I went and had a beer uh, at a bar down the street with one of my, with my platoon mates. And the minute I walked in, they had a beer ready for me and they mm. were like, okay, before you say anything, we're going to tell you what we think your dance was about. And they started from the top and they went all the way to the end. And they were like, that's what we think it's about. And I was like, wow, you got it spot on. And this was the first time they, I mean, they had just learned that you were even a dancer, right? Because that yeah. wasn't out there. So this was a whole lot of reveals going on. Oh yeah. Wow. And it's interesting. Cause when I asked for the validation, I was thinking of it like that, because Alvin Ailey's interested in you and willing to produce this and put on this show and all that, that that must've been validation, but you were thinking of it from the Marines and from the street cred angle. Um, did that weigh more to you than, than the professional validation? Absolutely. Absolutely. So Alvin Ailey wasn't, it was just a theater. It was another ballet company, but okay. I think, I think the artistic validation weirdly doesn't, doesn't, didn't bother me as much as, my guys interesting and i still and i still feel that way because like when we're talking 
like I've told this story to tons of people, uh, tons of people. And, you know, it's just a story and they'll pull out of it, whatever they want to pull out of it. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But when I'm talking to you, one, you're drawing out a story that I probably have never told anybody in this detail, but I'm also like, holy shit. Like he also knows what he's talking about and he knows what I'm talking about on another level. And so there's a bit more scrutiny and a bit more on the line, if you will, about like sharing this with you, like sharing Khabib Halawa all back then with my guys. Like it was opening up and being vulnerable and saying like, this is kind of how I felt about that experience. And I want to see kind of what you guys thought about it. And they were like, yeah, we got it. Yeah, totally. So now (laughs) where does it go from there? Did this light a fire? Did this, is this where everything kind of started for you? It was amazing seeing people connect with it in different Mm ways. And so I was like, what, how can we do this again? How can we speak to more people? Like, we spoke to like three people who had grandfathers or brothers or uncles in the military and from the civilian side, those are the people that shared stories, but how can we start to speak to a larger audience and get people who might not have experience with the military to at least gain a little bit of understanding or a little bit of an urge to gain an understanding through other means post-performance. <clears throat> And at the time I was looking, I had just gotten a book um, that the NEA released. That was a bunch of letters that um, soldiers had written home and that mm. loved ones had written overseas. And I was like, oh, I have some of these too. And so I started looking through the letters that people wrote to me while I was overseas, my sister, my mom, my girlfriend, and letters I had wrote home to see if anything kind of like sparked an artistic, like blah, blah, blah. And at the time I had a guy, a friend who was um, in uh, acting school uh, that I had danced with. And I was like, Hey, I have this crazy idea. I want to get like letters from the war and record them so that I can make a soundscape to make a new ballet. Mm. And he was like, yeah, I like, I'll even ask my instructors if we can use the recording studio. I'll ask some of my friends. And he assembled a recording studio for two days, a bunch of his actor and actress friends who came and just read my letters while I coached them through it of how I wanted them to sound. And we took that, we chopped it up, added some like music that was evocative, some, you know, sad violin cello music behind it. Um, but then knowing that like, nobody wants to come to a performance and just be like, right. It's tough left in the middle of it, you know, kind of it, those were the the sadness and the longing and the grief was from the letters from the loved ones to the soldier. The ones home were basically like, this is what deployment looks like. And so in the middle, I put some funny things about deployment, like, I had one Marine like waking up, like he was getting out of the rack to go on fire watch. And he like picks up his M16 and he picks up his toothbrush and then he like cleans his M16 and then cleans his tooth, you know, teeth and then falls over on his buddy. And just to provide some levity to yeah. like the, the heavy stuff that we were putting in the, in the ballet. Um, we also kind of depicted an altercation that we had at one of our checkpoints with a, a local Iraqi 
because like they, there was a question about use of force and escalation of force in detaining this individual. And it was something that didn't sit well with me. And so I put it on stage to kind of investigate it further. Mm. <clears throat> so we kind of choreographed that after to do in the middle part. And then the end was something that was incredibly like moving. Um, I had taken a letter from the book of a young woman who um, her husband is coming home from deployment and she goes to the airport to meet him. And the letter is basically like her getting to the airport and her, you know, being there with all the rest of the families, seeing the soldiers come off the plane, watching all of the families like get reunited, yeah. yada, 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 yada. And everybody filters out and she's left there. And the family readiness officer comes over and asks her what she's doing. And she says, you know, my husband was supposed to be on this flight. And unbeknownst to her, he got injured in an explosion two days before he was supposed to depart. Mm. And the word didn't get to her quick enough. And so the next time she sees him is in the burn unit at um, Walter Reed or Bethesda when it was back then. And we we put this on stage like we put this woman on stage and we depict all of the different types of reunions that typically happen when people sure. come home you know that that couple that's like i describe it like magnets that couple that like right snaps right back together because you know they could just and then you have those other magnets that are like they kind of push apart yeah um yeah. because they're unsure of each other until one gives a little bit and then they snap back together but in between these reunions, you have this one woman who's just walking around stage, pleading with people with her eyes, where's my husband? And Sorry, was this an actual incident that you took or was this, was this a concept? So <clears throat> this is from um, a compilation of letters. Okay. A real letter. From so it is a real letter, letter and a real, oh, wow. Okay. Jesus. Holy yeah. shit. And, you know, every place we we presented this to it just sobs and yeah of course of course so <laughs> now i mean what does this do for you now you're building this show i mean you're you're doubling down and is the response there are you finding on a practical level are you finding it's easier to get critical response are you finding that publicity is easier well, what how's that working how long do you have <laughs> the, the story, the stories we have are just incredible. You know, we, as we were building the show, we were still looking for new dancers because, wow. you know, you just kind of hire dancers for gigs and then they get interested in doing something else. And then you have to look for new people. Wow. And so I had always seen this dancer kind of dancing around New York city. Her name's Taylor Gordon. And, um, she emailed me and was like, Hey, you know, I'm really interested in like, dancing for exit 12. I saw your advertisement and like Craigslist or wherever we put it. Um, and I said, yeah, you know, we usually just invite people to rehearsal and see how they work. They see how we work and then see if we can work together. So she was like, sure, I'll, I'll come. Um, and we rehearsed at night, like on the weekdays, it was like a Thursday night rehearsal at battery dance company, which is all the way in Tribeca. It's a four flight walk up, yeah. um, in an old, building so it's like <laughs> you warm up before you warm up if you right 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 um and a couple of days before that she called she sends me an email and she's like hey um there's this reporter that's following me 
uh, and kind of writing a story about being a freelance dancer in New York City. Do you mind if she comes and watches the audition? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, whatever. Bring her yeah. along. Um, old adage, like, no publicity is bad publicity. Yeah, right, right. I think that's been disproven, but... <clears throat> um, turns this out is a new, this was, is a layup for publicity. I mean, boy, if they can bring a reporter with them, God bless. And you know? yeah. a reporter from the New York Times. Oh wow! And mm. so, if you hear Taylor talk it now, she almost didn't come. Like she almost like canceled it, but she came at the last minute. And she comes, kind of goes through the motions uh, in rehearsal, teach her a couple of stuff. Um, and then I sit next to the reporter and I kind of tell her what the company's about. Um, tell her that we're doing this work and I was a Marine, yada, yada, yada. And we're building this piece about the letters and whatnot. So <clears throat> after that, we ended up bringing Taylor on. She ended up kind of joining the company um, and started depicting in particular that character that le- that is left at the airport. Mm. So this individual okay. who like walks around, um, I think in the performances, we use a, a whoopee, um, the, um, I don't even poncho liner. Oh, okay. uh, the, the whoopee is a prop and you see her kind of walking around with the whoopee in her hands as a, you know, just to add that level of grief and comfort, that contrast between grief and comfort. Huh. And fast forward a couple of months or a month after that rehearsal, the article comes out and it's a full page color front page of the art section on a Sunday about Taylor and her freelance career in New York city talking about, you know, how she's running to this audition, to that audition, to this rehearsal, to that rehearsal and doing like writing on the side. And it has two sentences in it about exit 12 and what we do, you know, that she's auditioning for this dance company that like, is looking at the military experience or something like that. And I want to say, shit, you not, uh, we can cuss on this podcast. Yeah, you can cuss. Yeah. The, the next day I get a call from NPR and they're like, Hey, we were reading this article in the New York times about this dance company that is doing this like military thing. Would you be willing to talk to us? And I said, sure. And they said, okay, can you be at our recording studio in Connecticut? At like, I think it was like noon or 11 and they call, and finally got a hold of them at like nine or something. And I was at my day job and I said, yeah, I'll make it. And I got off the phone, ran upstairs to my boss. And I was like, Hey, um, do you mind if I take the rest of the day off? I got to drive to uh, NPR cause they want to do it like a, a thing on the company, um, or on this thing that I'm doing the dance thing. And they were like, sure. And all I had was my motorcycle. So I went, jumped on my motorcycle, flew home. Um, For some reason, my motorcycle didn't want to start after I had changed. So I threw it on the starter. I'm trying, I'm like watching the time tick by and I'm like, I'm going to be dangerous. So I get my motorcycle started after what seemed like 20 minutes of like trying to get this thing started, jump on it. And I'm flying from, uh, where I was living in central Connecticut to uh, Hartford. And I, I don't think I've ever driven that fast on my motorcycle and I would never do it again. Um, But I made it. And 
of course, like, you know, I, if you've ever dealt with like national press before, they don't give you much information. They just kind of tell you where to be, um, that there's a, somebody wants to talk to you, yada, 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 unless the reporter reaches out directly. Sure. So I had no idea what this was for. And so I walk in, I give the person my name. She's like, okay, somebody's going to come down and get you. So somebody comes to get me, we're in the elevator. And I'm like, so can you just tell me what this is for? And they're like, <laughs> oh yeah, this is for um, all things considered. Oh, wow. And I was like, wait a, wait a second, what? Um, wow. For those podcast listeners who are probably not as old as I, um, all things considered is a national radio show that NPR does that is syndicated nationally. Um, it's, and it's, a, it's one of their flagship a, pod, uh, flagship shows. Yeah. It's drive right. time flagship. Yeah. Um, yeah. so it's when you're coming home from work, I believe. And so that's why they had the recording time because they wanted to push it either for that day or the next day. And so I walk in, sit down, they give me the like headphones and the microphone and I do my like sound check and Michelle Norris comes on the line, um, the famous all things considered reporter. And we chat about the dance choreography that I'm putting together um, on NPR. So to answer your question in a very long winded way, people started taking note of this. That's, I mean, no, listen, and it's understandable because that's, that is a huge culmination of a lot of effort that you've been putting in where suddenly now from there on out, did the pre, would did that kind of open the spigot and now from then on out you you're you're a known quantity and and you have some bona fides in the community people know who you are and you're getting the attention that you need i say this with not only hindsight but the experience of doing this for 13 years when you introduce something as i was a ballet dancer who joined the marine corps and now mm-hmm. i'm choreographing dance about this with veterans people raise an eyebrow and they want to talk about it yeah and so we got a little bit of a push um from npr like there were finally people talking about what we did i think it was the first time i heard exit 12 in passing conversation at one of the dance studios Wow. wow um and i was like hey that's that's ours Um, but then as the arts world kind of does, you know, after that big kind of high in 2010, 2011, we're still kind of trying to figure out what to do. Um, Habibi Halawa, we didn't get a DVD from that performance. So it's re it's going to be really hard to reset if we ever reset Habibi Halawa. Wow. Um, and I just felt like I had hit this crater in the road that I couldn't pull out of. And I was like, why the hell am I doing this? Nobody's paying attention. Nobody's like, nobody cares about this work. They all want to see like entertainment. Right. Nobody wants to see this stuff that is talking about social issues. Even though it was 2011 and we were still going on with Iraq and Afghanistan at the time, people were still deploying in troves. Um, yeah, it was the reason I, still. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, I wanted people to start talking about this and it just wasn't happening. So I was like, why, why am I doing this? Why, why don't I just be responsible again and buckle down and do what I'm doing? Okay. So even after all the 
fluff and all the, and not even just fluff, even after seeing your work on stage and seeing the response it got, it got and all that, you, did you feel that, well, let's go back to what your girlfriend, wife asked you, Hey, something's got to change. Did you feel like, Hey, there's catharsis. There's a, a personality shift, a focus shift for me that's happening. And, um, because obviously if you're having those doubts and going, you know, why am I doing this? Were, were you losing, was the personal tie to it still not as strong as it needed to be? Um, or where were you with that? That's a really good way of putting it. And I think you're right in a couple of senses. I think the performance itself wasn't enough. Mm. And that's all we were doing in 2011 is we were trying to push performances. And we were tying it directly to dance. And so there was still this disconnect of like, okay, well, you're dancers and you're doing this like military type work and that's all you're doing. Okay. And so we would get performances every once in a while, but it was a really hard slog. And then you know how hard the arts is. I mean, it's just brutal sometimes. Sure. And so I was like, I just don't, there's something missing that I personally don't have to like push this above the plateau we've hit. So that's kind of a, um, that's a bit of a nut check moment, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Um, Before we get to kind of how you got out of that hole, I want to kind of ask about the support system you had in place. When dancers come to dance for you, I doubt many little ballerinas as they're growing up are picturing stomping around in combat boots on stage doing choreography. Did you find that the dancers that were drawn to you either were drawn, well, that there was a conflict that you couldn't always be focused on talent because you needed people that also believed in the mission. And therefore you have to gravitate towards people that believe in the mission, whether or not they're the best dancers, you need people that are going to commit and be happy and satisfied and enjoy stomping around in combat boots. Is that an issue? Yes, absolutely. We, you know, initially when we started doing like Craigslist and listservs in New York city that put out calls for dancers, we were getting exactly that. We were getting professional dancers or pre-professional dancers in New York city that wanted to dance and would audition for our company. And then they either had like, you know, a family member that was in the military Mm -hmm. before, or they were interested in the work enough that they would come to rehearsal and they would do performances. And inviting them to rehearsal was the best way of doing it rather than doing an audition, which we did earlier, because we could see, they could see exactly what we did at rehearsal. And if they liked the working environment, great. Mm. If they didn't, they usually didn't come back, which was self-selective. Yep. On the flip side, we could always also see their work ethic and their, you know, the way they kind of worked with the work in a couple of rehearsals as well. Sure. Um, That's a really smart way of vetting them. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, there's a lot of dancers that would, you know, come for one rehearsal and it just wasn't for them. And that's fine. Cause it's like you said, it's not the typical work that somebody in New York city would be looking for. So one other piece of background before we uh, find out the next steps, where did exit 12 come from? What's the, what's the story of the actual name? So, um, Lisa, my wife, 
and Lara, the other dancer that started the company with us, the other dancer that was at Steps, we all three of us got together and started discussing, well, what are we going to call this thing? And back in 2007, 2008, there were a lot of small dance companies that were popping up around New York City, and they were all doing the same thing. They were either calling themselves choreographer's name, dance company, dance oh. project, or project. And so I came to the meeting with, of course, let's call this Roman Baca Dance Project. And they both went, no. And we kind of kicked around some other ideas, but Lara um, lived in Inwood uh, up on like two in the 200s in Manhattan. And she drove, she often drove to rehearsal and she would take the FDR down and she would get off of exit 12 to get the steps. And so she said, you know, why don't we call it something that is kind of a throwback to where we started um, and call it exit 12. And I liked it because it was a throwback to where we started. It grounded us solidly in New York city, but it was also kind of ambiguous enough that it could mean a lot of things. Yeah. How were you open to, I mean, that's if everybody's calling themselves name of the choreographer dance company, and then everybody's like, yeah, but not your name. Don't you do that? Was that a hit to the ego or how'd you take that? Um, I mean, what's, what's not a hit to the ego when you're an artist. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I look back and I'm like, it, it was the best choice for the culture that we've developed because, Mm. you know, in a lot of ways, this isn't my dance company. It's ours. Mm. And, you know, skipping to the end, we've invited so many veterans, so many family members, so many dancers in to come and share their artistry, share their stories, be with us artistically, create, um, contribute their voice, that it's loads more than just Ramon Baca Dance Project. So now you're at your your lowest ebb because you've had a taste of success, right? But now, would you describe it that you're feeling purposeless, unfulfilled? What, what is it? Where are you at uh, mentally now? Completely stuck. Okay. Like I couldn't move anything forward. But And you're still working the day job. So theoretically, that's always a safety valve, right? You could always yep. exit there if you needed to. Yeah, exactly. To exit 12, right. Okay. So now, so so what shakes you out of it? So I ended up going to a service project in Manhattan in Times Square with a, a organization called The Mission Continues. Mm, um, sure. You might have heard about them in the sure. veteran community. It's yeah. um, back then, what they were doing was they were getting um, disabled veterans and put, putting them into fellowships and paying for it, where they would serve at a nonprofit for six months. But unlike AmeriCorps or a lot of the other fellowships that were doing similar things, the veteran chose kind of their goals of that partnership because the nonprofit didn't really have a, the only buy-in that they had was they had to provide like space, um, mentoring, that kind of thing. The, The wage was being provided by the mission continues. They were paying for this to happen. And so the veteran was like, yeah, you know, you know, you had veterans that were working at like local animal shelters who cared about animals, animals or like farms that wanted to get into like agriculture or, um, stuff like that. And I was like, wow, this is my opportunity 
to get into the arts. Because what arts organization isn't going to say, oh, yeah, somebody's going to pay you to come and work for us for six months? Great. Yeah. So I approached them. Um, They said, we're not accepting applications from non-disabled veterans. um, But we'll let you know how things develop. And I think they opened it up finally about six to seven months later, where I got a call from them and they were like, hey, um, we've just opened it up to all veterans post 9-11. We'd love for you to apply. And so I started making uh, calls out to places in New York City, again, with an email that I couldn't even... (laughs) believe I wrote saying exactly that. Hi, I'm a Marine Corps veteran who's also a dancer choreographer. I have this opportunity of this fellowship where they'll pay for me to come and work at your nonprofit for six months. Um, Can we chat about it? And who are you applying to? What nonprofit? Was it nonprofit dance companies exclusively or was it other kinds of nonprofits? Dance companies in New York City. Okay. So um, I had some friends in New York City that had deeper connections than I did and they forwarded it along to like Harlem School for the Arts, Alvin Ailey, Mark Morris, um, Battery Dance Company, just about every Gibney, every sm- like small to medium company that would be like, okay, we'll bring somebody in in like a fellowship type type of capacity. And after all of that, I got two interviews. I got an interview with Harlem School for the Arts and Battery Dance Company, and I took a day off of work. And made both of the interviews on the same day. And I went into New York City and I met at Harlem School of the Arts first. And it was interesting at Harlem, what was happening at Harlem School for the Arts. They were kind of in a moment of change in their artistic direction and artistic team. And they had brought in four new people to um, oversee their dance department, their theater department, their visual Mm -hmm. arts department. And they were like, this would be perfect because you could shadow all of those people. You could learn arts admin. You could be ingrained in what we're doing um, in a large way. And I was like, wow, this sounds really great. The the woman I met with, her dad was an Air Force pilot. um, And so we hit it off great. And I was like, wow, this would be really cool. And I remember walking out of that meeting and I checked my voicemail and I got a voicemail from the director of Battery Dance Company who was like, hey, I can't meet today. Something popped up. Um, Can we reschedule? And in my head, I was thinking, oh, I took my only day off of work. I don't know how I'm going right. to get another day. I don't know how this is going to work because like, he could only meet during the daytime hours. And so I like called him back, got his voicemail. I explained, you know, I don't know how this is going to work because I'd love to meet with you. However, I can't get into the city very often. Um, and if I get into the city, it's usually got to be evening time. And I expected like, on one hand, I'm thinking maybe this is kismet, right? Right. It's, Fate telling me that Harlem's the landing place for me. That's what I'm going to do. Um, might as well start to move forward with that. So went home, started going about my business. And a couple of days later, I got a call from Jonathan. He's like, look, um, why don't you come down like tomorrow night? We'll have dinner at a restaurant close to me and we'll talk about this. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Absolutely. So I got off of work, took the train into New York City, went down to Tribeca to this wonderful Italian restaurant that he loves. I've been there so many times. 
And we sat down and ordered wine. And he wanted more information about this fellowship because I didn't give people enough information in the email, as <laughs> I just explained. And I explained this thing to him. And he's like, oh, I get it. He's like, well, I have something for you. And he slid over a State Department magazine. And he said, open to such and such page. And it was an article about an initiative Battery Dance Company had started to work in other countries with people of divergent um, populations and bring them together through dance and teach them how to choreograph something. And they had worked, their first gig was in Germany working with Israeli and Palestinian students and bringing them together through dance to talk about their their misunderstandings, the war, that kind of thing. Right. You know, it built a, a sense of comradeship and yeah, understanding sure. between these groups. And he was like, you know, I want to train you in this system. They had built a system of doing this. And then I want to see if we can do this system with you in a rock. And I was like, done. Let's do yeah, it. Yeah, right, right. Absolutely. And so um, I applied for the fellowship um, with, it was like 2011. So at the time I had already become artistic director of the Nutcracker in West Hartford. So I had gone from just being a teacher wow. to teaching more classes and for them to ask me to direct their Nutcracker, their wow. largest production of the year. Um so many stories and <laughs> now like i'm like okay well now i'm gonna do this fellowship so it's the first time like i went i went to my boss of my drafting job and i said look i have this opportunity um do you mind if i take kind of a sabbatical um i don't know if it's going to pay a lot so can i come back and work every once in a while just to like make Holy a dollar crap. And they said, yes. Wow. Wow. And they kind of like gave their blessings as I went to do this fellow, this low paid fellowship in Manhattan with battery dance company with the aim of going back to a rock. Um, and then also like doing our second year of the nutcracker in West Hartford. Okay. So that does seem to kind of tie a whole lot of threads together. I'm assuming that that started that that I'm assuming you started to get a whole lot of purpose, like all the focus kind of narrowed at that point, and you were starting to see everything coming together. I mean, even the fact that the grace of the company that you were working for as your day job, being able to financially kind of cut you some, you know, help you out, and yet you have the freedom to go do this. I mean, that's kind of a sign now that, all right, your focus is narrowing and you're able to actually get on with what you're about. Mm -hmm. How did that play out? Did you just start going and traveling for Battery Dance Company and going all over the world? So we, yes and no. Um, the first part was showing up at Battery Dance Company to learn their system, which okay. took, I think, three days. Then we did a, a couple of taster workshops in New York City public schools. Um, one in Irving Place, uh, Lincoln 
like Lincoln High School that was a bunch of charter schools. And we worked with one mm-hmm. of the schools in there. Um, then did a couple of schools in Queens. So I could kind of see how this system worked. Right. And this is and a system with, of dance or is this the system administratively? Uh, dance. How okay. It's actually dance workshop. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, I mean, prior to that, I had only taught dance. I had never thought about like utilizing an individual's creativity to create something that was important to them through movement. Mm. Um, and now I'm seeing it on stage in New York City public schools. I'm seeing kids get together and talk about bullying, talk about um, discrimination, racism through a workshop that lasts a couple of days and creates some really, really powerful stuff. And so this is kind of the buildup. Meanwhile, Jonathan is connecting with his contacts in Iraq in the State Department, trying to get this trip ironed out. And in, so I got the fellowship in like January, and then we got word that we were leaving in April um, to go to Iraq for seven days. And we were going to work in Erbil in the north a safer part of Iraq. Um, And we were going to be working with 30 youth um, ages 16 to 24. So military age. And they were going to be from uh, Erbil in the North and Kirkuk about 40 to 45 minutes to an hour South of Erbil. And the only people going would be me and another one of Jonathan's uh, senior dancers. Uh, and artists, uh, a female, uh, New York city dancer. And Jonathan tells the story that he stood in front of all of his dancers and asked them who would want to go with Ramon back to Iraq to do (laughs) their dancing to connect workshop. And everybody raised their hand, except for Robin, the dancer that ended up going with me. Oh, really? Um, (laughs) I thought thought it was going to be like, like, Oh, holy shit. That's a big ask. No, we're good. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. military voluntold fashion yeah when jonathan yeah. tells the story he voluntold robin um robin disputes that story <laughs> um but fast forward you know after all of the logistical planning after all of the debriefs um robin and i found ourselves um counting out a large sum of money that we'd be taking with us to pay the theater um to pay all of our handlers, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then getting our itineraries from the State Department and the consulate in Erbil, and then getting into a black cab to go to JFK destination, Iraq. And I remember both of us getting into the cab and Robin looking at me and saying, I I just want to tell you I'm scared. And she's like, and I'll tell you why. Because everybody I tell that I'm going to like Germany to do a dance workshop or Africa to do a dance workshop or even the Congo to do a dance workshop, they're like, great, yay, do great things. And then when I tell them I'm going to Iraq, they're like, why? Um, Be careful. And so then she was like, well, I'll go and get one of those like travel books so that we can plan out like our sites that we're going to see while we're there too. She gets a travel book um, of the Middle East, flips to Iraq, and it says, this country is an active war zone. Travel to this country is not recommended in the book. 
And so she looks at me and she says, I'm scared. And I looked at her and I said, I'm a Marine. I've been trained in things that you don't even know. I want you to know that if anything happens, I'll protect you. And, and my mouth said that. And my brain went, holy shit, I'm scared too. Yeah. Yeah. And how did it feel getting off the plane there? So we landed in Turkey, um, in Istanbul. We had a, like eight hours to run around Istanbul, check out Istanbul. And then the people in the Turkish airport were like, um, you can't go to Erbil. It's a war zone. And we were like, um, but we have this letter from the State Department that tells you what we're doing. And they went, okay, stamped our passports off to Erbil. We landed in the Erbil airport in the middle of the night. Um, and it was an old Turkish Airlines plane that was falling apart. There was nobody on the flight that spoke English. Um, the English announcements were the very last after the Turkish and Arabic. And they were the one you could barely read or barely listen to. Um, we both drifted in and out of sleep on the flight. And then we landed in the airport. Um, and our instructions were very mission impossible, right? Get your bags. Get your visa, which you should be able to pay for at the airport with cash. Go and get onto a bus, a shuttle bus that will take you to a parking lot. And in that parking lot, you'll meet your interpreter and your guide who will shuttle you to the hotel. So as soon as they announce landing, I'm planning in my head, okay, we're going to do this Mission Impossible style. So I kind of look at Robin. I'm like, we're going to be the first ones off this plane. We're going to be the first ones to the baggage cart. We're going to be the first ones onto that bus so that we are by ourselves headed to that parking lot, just in case. So sure enough, door opens. We beeline it off that plane. Our bags are first off of the turnstiles. We grab our bags. We're like, great. We go, sure enough, 20 bucks. We get our visa to... um stay in the country in Erbil for seven days. And we are beelining it to this shuttle bus, which is right outside of Erbil International Airport. We jump on the bus. We go all the way to the front. I put myself in a corner, put her right next to me. I turn around and I'm like, great. We are headed to the parking lot. And the bus doesn't leave. And it waits for everybody on that plane to get on the bus. As I'm seeing more and more people getting on the bus, I'm just like thinking the worst. I'm like, there's like three military age males over there that are going to jump us because we're Americans. And there's a couple of guys over there that are going to jump us because we're Americans. And then four, a family of four gets on the bus and it's like a husband and wife and they have like a, a child that's like five that they're holding his hand. And then there was one child that had to be carried. And they were really struggling with their um, luggage. And so humanity overrid all of those fears that I had. And I went and I helped them with their suitcases, as did Robin. Robin kind of played with their child a little bit so he would settle down so that they could get on the bus safely. And the doors closed and we were off to the parking lot. And I was like, wow, we just did something very, very human. And my fear is alleviated. And we got to the parking lot. And sure enough, there was the interpreter and her brother uh, holding mm. a sign that's yeah. a battery dance company and she spoke perfect english and we got on the bus and she drove us to 
the Schwar Shra Hotel in Erbil, which means Four Seasons. Um, it was the most picturesque hotel you probably ever wanted to imagine. It had taxidermied animals all around the entranceway and old like um, Assyrian like tiles and mm. even a even a dia- a full size I don't know if you can call it a diorama but mannequins and a mm. Assyrian like wow. tent that was made up in the corner and I was like where are we and they led us to our room I couldn't turn the light on because one of those hotel rooms where you have to put your key into the light slot oh, and the light turns yeah. on and so I'm trying to flick the light and I'm like I'm just too tired so I went to bed and we were safely in a rock. And did you have any time to think, hey, the last time I was here, or had that did you not had any time to kind of process that and go, hey, I'm back here? It was nerve-wracking every step of the way until we started working with those kids. Um, you know, we had a meeting with the leadership that morning after we went to the state department to get our safety briefs um yeah we had to go to the consulate uh the next day and sit down with the rso the range safety officer regional safety officer officer. yeah yeah to get our safety brief and you know just kind of told us the things to do things not to do yeah um i was expecting it to be a lot worse but Erbil at the time was very very safe um we were able to walk around see the sites, go to shopping malls. Um, And then we went to the leadership meeting with um, the interpreter, a reporter from Reuters who was there, and then a couple other um, dignitaries from like the theater or the school where the kids were from. And I got to tell them, you know, like I served in your country in 2007 in Fallujah as a US Marine with a weapon with tons of Marines. And they all kind of got nervous and they all kind of leaned back. And I said, but I'm an artist and I can tell you that I haven't brought anything with me. The only thing I have with me is my dance shoes, my dance clothes and some music. And we're here to work with your kids and teach them how to choreograph. And they all leaned back in and it started this amazing relationship with all of these individuals where at every turn where we hit a difficulty they wanted to help. Was that the only time you went back to Iraq or is did that yes. go become an ongoing relationship? Okay. Did battery dance um, continue to do stuff though with them? <clears throat> well, they continued the relate. The, the program was incredible. Okay. Like we, in seven short days, we choreographed a dance that talks about these kids living up in a country riddled with war. Um, and, been wanting to tell the world that even though they have this big cloud of war over their heads, they just want everyone to know that they're just like everybody else. They want to grow up in a safe country. They want to find a job that means something to them. They want to settle down with somebody they love. All kinds of media picked it up. We were in the Wall Street Journal. We were Mm. on Reuters. Um, But then after we got back, I wanted to do it again. I still want to do it again. Um, and about a year later, we had an, a representative from the ministry of culture in Baghdad visit and battery called me up. And this was after the fellowship had ended. And they said, look, the ministry of culture is coming. Do you want to like go with 
our director of development and sit down and have a chat. And I was like, yes, please. Like, let's do this. So we met in Manhattan, Times Square, a little restaurant. We're sitting down for this wonderful Italian meal. And the Ministry of Culture looks at me and says, we love what you've done. We love like the message that you've been delivering. We believe in the power of art. We want you to come to Baghdad and tour all of the colleges and universities and tell your story. And I was like, yes, let's do this. And so we were building a relationship. And then I get the email that says, Ramon, I'm sorry, um, ISIS has moved in. Uh, the security situation is no longer what it was. We won't be able to bring you. And that was the last contact really with Iraq or being able to do anything over there. Absolutely. Did you? So I'm assuming that over the years, you continued to do stuff, though, going to troubled regions and doing these workshops. Is that fair to say or no? What I wanted to. And I made, I, I made every effort to try and duplicate this in my own way. And what's disheartening is that unlike the choreographic journey, at every road, every contact from an NGO said the same thing. You're not going to be able to work here. Yeah. You're just not going to be able yeah. to do that here. And no amount of persuasion, no amount of um, pleading would change their mind. And so what I ended up doing was repurposing the battery dance program, adding some of my own elements and starting to work with veterans. Um, and starting to attach a lot of the movement ideas that Battery was doing to military and uh, transition type of themes and doing it with veterans. So then how were you feeling emotionally now? So after Iraq and as this has developed and as you were transitioning to work with veterans more, were you feeling home at home now? And you're like, Hey, I'm in my zone. This is what I'm doing. This is what I love to do. And I'm comfortable. Or is there still an ache? I don't think I was comfortable. I don't think I've ever been comfortable, but I'll tell you one thing. When I got back from Iraq, I was the happiest I've ever been. Mm. I, that work that we did with those kids, the way we did it and the tools that I knew that I learned that I had to be able to pull that off. I mean, we were put in a wrong theater. We had to move theaters. We had to figure out how to figure out a floor that would work. I had to work with an antiquated lighting system with a lighting designer who was disagreeable. We had to find a way to bring the audience into the theater and work with local partners. I had to negotiate fees for all of the people we were working with and tell them why they were getting the fee we told them. And so all of these tools like that, I thought I didn't have, and that I had to learn through this fellowship. I knew pieces of them and I now had the opportunity to put them to the test and I, and I, and it worked. And we choreographed this dance that these kids put on stage in front of a packed audience. And we had family members coming to us and asking us when we were coming back, when we were going to do this again, because it was so needed in the area. The kids were like, messaging us all the time after that, just like keeping in touch. Yeah. And then when I started doing this dance workshop with the veterans and seeing how 
we could start to elicit these stories and diversify the stories we were telling from the perspectives of people that needed to tell their stories. I, I knew we were onto something and I knew that I, I had to keep going. Is we that, had to keep going. Is that kind of your chasing the dragon moment? Is that the high you always want to recapture? Is that feeling you had like to you? Is that the, is that the moment? So it's not going down and playing, I don't know, the Kennedy center or going to Lincoln center. It's that it's, it's having this impactful work done with a, a population. So like, that's the high I want to get back. Is that safe to say? Yeah. yeah. Or being able to do really impactful work in front of audiences that want to talk about it after. Got you. So now let's fast forward a whole bunch because I don't want to take up your entire Sunday. And not like I haven't taken up a whole ton of your time anyway this week, but you're going to be, you're going to be um, like part one, two, three. <laughs> <laughs> it seriously could be, I know. Um, but so on Instagram, uh, I was following it closely because you told me you were busy doing it, but I want to jump to the horses. So we, we went from kids up in Iraq to helping veterans to now you're out in New Mexico dancing with horses. What's going on? Out yeah. There? So in this journey, we, one of my dreams has always been back to go back to New Mexico and share our work with my hometown um, and my dance community back home. And we finally found a, a partner that wanted to help us in that regard. Mm. And got introduced to the New Mexico Arts Council, um, who has a military and veteran art initiative within it that wanted to help us too. And so in May, we were going to do a large scale tour to New Mexico where we were going to perform, hold master classes, hold veteran workshops, et cetera. And what it ended up being was the company was in New York rehearsing. I was in New Mexico on the ground and doing all of the workshops, the rehearsals, and um, PR. And then we ended up building a virtual delivery of um, a performance via New Mexico PBS. So they hosted an event where um, we got to talk about the company. They showed the documentary that we did. Then we... Um, showed the new piece that we had created based upon the experiences of Navajo, Native American, Pueblo, Indigenous veterans who stand up per capita, um, the largest group of individuals mm. per capita that joined the military, yet one could understand their conflicted service, standing up for a country that probably hasn't ever stood up for them. And so we created a work about that. Um, some of my family members were from the Santa Ana Pueblo in New Mexico, and we connected with an organization called the Native Health Initiative, where they helped us develop this work, develop these stories through people, families, and veterans that they worked with. And so that was our introduction and kind of um, our gift to a place that raised me not only as a young man, but as a dancer and an artist. We also held a talk back at the end of that for mm. people to talk about what we had just shown them. And the moderator of that talk back was a Marine who left the Marines to become a special forces uh, soldier in the army and then transitioned into chaplaincy mm. and uh, now is a chaplain, well, is a chaplain, but did chaplaincy for the Santa Fe Police Department for a long time. 
Rick Iannucci. And he invited us out to his ranch where he does a program called Horses for Heroes. And what he does is he brings in veterans um, struggling with uh, either invisible illnesses or uh, reintegration. And he leads a program with his wife, Nancy, where they deliver yoga and spirituality and mindfulness, as well as um, equine gestalt experiences where they're, the veterans are working one-on-one with the horses. Wow. They're connecting with them through uh, energies and um, making a bonding. And then they actually do some cowboy stuff. Um, they go out and ride horses and they rustle steers and they do brandings and, um, and he's built this whole bunkhouse where he has people come and the chapel, uh, a chapel on site. And he said, well, why don't you just bring your leadership team out? Because, you know, working with this population, you guys could one benefit from just a week of recentering. Um, and then mm. the, our organization and your organization can kind of bounce back and forth um, ideas, best practices of working with veterans and working with the military. And then maybe we can come up some, with something creative out of this endeavor. And it just so happens our leadership team right now is myself, my wife, Lisa, um, Adrian De La Fuente, who uh, has been with the company for 10 years. And she, her father was in the army. And then Taylor Gordon, Mm. who is still with us. Um, Mm. Her brother joined the army two years after she started with Exit 12. Wow. And so her journey got really real for her really quickly. Um, And then unfortunately, her brother um, lost his life to suicide not long before he was uh, let go from the army after two deployments to Afghanistan. And so this is the leadership team that is going out to, you know. Yeah talk about this stuff and to work with this stuff. Okay. So that, um, sorry, that derailed me just hearing about the suicide. Yeah. That's, that's, um, that's God bless her. That's, that's a rough one. Um, let maybe, let me just focus it back on that. How did that affect your mission? Since she's an integral part of the company, did that make you do, did you start doing more outreach stuff for veteran suicide? Did you, did you have a piece in mind? What did that, how did that impact your company? So you probably have the same, but my experience has not, hasn't not included suicide. Uh, We've lost two Marines from our unit uh, since Fallujah. And then um, one of my very good Marine buddies uh, out in the real world uh, took his own life as well. And so, you know, Taylor had been dancing with us. When we started the company, we wanted this company to not only be a, a company, but a family. We wanted to be able to go out and rehearse and work hard and then go get margaritas and, and be a family. Sure. And with Taylor and Adrian and Paige and like all these like solid company members that ended up being with the company for years, um, we decided to go on a little like retreat. And it was on that retreat that we were both raising our glasses to Nick's impending departure from the army and then all grieving. Um, none more than Taylor uh, when we found out the news that he had uh, taken his own life. And so Taylor has been 
one of the most inspiring people I've ever met. She took that experience and turned it into a dance piece that we premiered um, at Arlington National Cemetery a couple of years ago called For My Father. And it's a dance piece that uses music from um, Jason Moons. Uh, he's an army veteran who does a compilation of um, songs about war called warrior songs. And he has on his first album, three songs with that he does with his daughter. Mm. And so, you know, she choreographed this three movement piece to this music that goes through, you know, her and her father's experience of watching her brother go through um, the army and then take his own life. And then, how they see hope in the children um, afterwards. And just her courage to do that, to do that at Arlington National Cemetery, steps sure. away from you know where her brother is buried. Um, and then to fundraise and to speak about it publicly. We we led, she led a very large fundraiser for 22 Kill. Um, and she hasn't shied away from talking about it publicly because she feels as we do that. Um, it's an epidemic that needs to be stopped. Talk to me about where you guys are then mission wise now. How do you see yourselves now? Are you still, well, you know, um, it seems like every major um, kind of uh, uh, waypoint on your path has been a very personal one. So going back to Iraq, going back to New Mexico. Taylor's brother's suicide, you know, um, do you have a lot more personal material that you want to mine or are you, is there, or is your focus now more outward where you're like, okay, I think we've gotten some things off our chest, but we are where we know we're looking for other external sources of inspiration. We discovered a power in collective voice and a and also we've noticed that there are voices that are missing from the conversations that need to be amplified. And so where we are now is we're, we're a dance company that tells war stories choreographically mm. to hopefully heal and move towards peace. And we champion those voices who might not be heard otherwise. Um, we were just talking about the Native American voice that, you know, conflicted service might not be discussed or talked about or understood. Um, a couple of months ago, we partnered with an organization out of New York City and one of their writers um, who is an Air Force veteran who's gay and black. And we helped him tell his story about being gay and black in the Air Force and being terrified of being tossed out of the Air Force because of Don't Ask, Don't Tell and his family finding out that he's gay because he was tossed out of the military. And so it's while we know that there are tons of stories that need to be told, um, we also understand that there is an amplification needed for um, voices like the Native American voices, voices like Omar Columbus, who is the US Air Force veteran. Um, Voices like female veterans who no one is listening to about the things that they go through in the military. And this is the work that we feel is important. Amplification of stories that are important and that need to be heard and that need to be talked about. 
Do you have something currently on the docket that's coming up? What's your next piece? We just proposed um, a a six-week workshop at the USS Intrepid Air, Sea, and Space Museum in New York Harbor. Wow. At the um, aircraft carrier. Sure. And what we would do is bring in veterans from uh, the tri-state area, and we would run a, a, a lengthy creative workshop with them, modeled after the workshop we did in Iraq where they're coming together multiple times um, and building a piece, telling their stories. So, and then we would uh, aim for a public performance on the Intrepid uh, during Fleet Week in 2023. And then we just started working on an initiative in Upper Hudson Valley in Newburgh, New York, with two partners, um, a partner called Clear Path for Veterans, They're a a veterans organization in upstate New York that helps veterans find access to resources, um, people, and community. And then a fitness organization that works with veterans through football fitness to get them moving um, in Newburgh to do a creative retreat for three days, bringing veterans in from the Hudson Valley and then giving them a weekend packed with fitness, movement. creative writing, painting, uh, leadership workshops where they can discover resources that they may not think were applicable to them in three days and then have a public performance of whatever comes out of that uh, retreat. You're right in our neck of the woods. So that's awesome, man. That's really, is that play for your freedom or uh, I forget the name. That is play for you. Do you know David? I, 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 so I know of him. Um, I yeah. don't, I, I don't know him personally. Um, I've heard about the work they do. Um, we're looking at spaces. We actually are, our, our permanent home is, is a source of unending frustration, uh, right now, but, uh, but we, we were looking for a long time in Newburgh. Um, it's some great properties there and, um, and then the surrounding area, but we're right down the river in Cornwall. So oh, we're, no way. We're, we're dangerously close. You were right in our neck of the woods. So stop by, get a drink or something when, when you're here. Listen, I, love I, to. I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your expatriate years. Um, <laughs> since everybody's probably just listened to both of these is like, wait, he's in London though. Right. So what the fuck and what's going on there? And when, and in your bio, which people from the first episode will remember, um, and I'll probably do a whole spiel again for this episode. Your bio is um, insane. Uh, more honorifics and more credentialing than than uh, the most, and it's impressive. But it seemed, what's going on with like the Air Force Navy Research Unit? What's going on with your uh, your uh, PhD? Um, why are you in London? Like, talk about all that stuff because that's a whole another aspect that we haven't even gotten into. After leading uh, Ballet Theater Company in West Hartford for 10 years and um, becoming their first full-time artistic director, uh, I felt I needed a a change and I needed to delve into Exit Mm -hmm. 12 uh, more deeply. Uh, And so I applied for and received a Fulbright to come to uh, the United Kingdom and do my master's in choreography here and to... Uh, do some volunteer work with some veterans organizations that were working with veterans in the performing arts and create new work that was risky and experimental, all aimed at a public performance at a uh, art center in Berwick-upon-Tweed, which is north east England, almost to Scotland, 
and they wanted someone to talk about the converging energies around World War II, World War One, and Stravinsky's writing of the Rite of Spring, wow. uh, a seminal uh, piece of work that almost transformed music, uh, and and its influence is still reverberating throughout the musical community. Um, there's an author who saw congru- uh, saw intersections of the energies that started World War One and the energies that contributed to the Rite of Spring. Wow. And so we took the Rite of Spring and envisioned it uh, happening through the military lens. Um, and so I did two years here in London, uh, did my master's, ended up choreographing some really transformative work. We My master's performance was a piece where we took four dancers and four groups of audience members on a walk through a mm. field that was almost like a battlefield. And they evoked personal stories from military veterans that were wounded in Iraq and Afghanistan wow. through movement and speech. And then the audience culminated and went through a ritual of burial and resurrection by being invited to bury me real time um, with soil using a shovel. Wow. And this was the first piece where we started real conversations about individual contributions or non-contributions to violence. Um, People were saying, you know, I didn't want to take the shovel, but then I thought about, you know, how my personal choices either contribute or don't contribute to peace or war. Um, And these are the conversations that evoked. So I finished my master's, went back, got stuck, did had COVID in the UK or in the US for a while. Went came back to the UK to kind of continue this work on an arts visa, a global talent visa. It was awarded uh, last year. And we um, wanted to hit the ground running. It's been kind of slow going because of COVID, but I was offered a PhD program at York St. John University on scholarship to continue going down this road of, of military and dance and do my PhD in that. And then along that, I started talking with a researcher from the U.S. who is looking at um, reintegration, resilience, and transition of um, special operations communities. Uh, so not only special operators, but the communities that surround the special operators, specifically caring communities, um, critical air transport, uh, communities like that and how their experiences either contribute or don't contribute to resilience. And that has kind of spiked off into other pieces of research that I'm doing on the side um, to contribute to my PhD, to contribute to my research. Wow. Artistically, um, it all weirdly seems to be converging in a very positive way. Yeah. And so, I mean, that, that's what that makes me ask. I mean, what's the end goal? What are you looking to do? Because it looks like there's, I mean, not that you couldn't continue to do dance and blow this out and continue to find all the color and nuance in what you're doing, but your cross, your, your Venn diagram's got a lot of overlap there. So yeah, where do you see this all going? Welcome to my hell in my <laughs> mind. Um, you know, COVID has really upended a lot of things. Exit 12 was on this path to really make a go out of being uh, 
a solid company and for me to be doing it more than um, part-time. And I had discussed with the board the opportunity to do that right before COVID happened. Of course, all of that has slowed. And so now um, I am looking for teaching positions again. Um, Academia has slowed down as well. We'd really love to get back to pushing exit 12 and above kind of the plateau we've hit again. Um, It's not a bad plateau. We're still working. We're still getting very interesting things to do, as I just shared. Sure. Sure. Um, But as you probably know, artistic endeavors are very hard to fund, um, especially operations-wise. And so um, I'm going to continue doing all the things I'm doing um, because they all make sense. Um, And then hopefully we can build Exit 12 to the level that we are doing more of that. Because as you know, and we've found out, we are only at the cusp of the ramifications in the veteran community from Iraq and Afghanistan. As we learned from the Vietnam community, it's just going to keep coming and coming and coming and coming for years, years down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I I wonder what's going to happen when we go back into Afghanistan, which I predict will be in the next two to three years. Cause I don't know how we can't, but yeah, I mean, and, and what that's going to mean, um, for, for our community, Ramon, um, holy shit, man. If only you had, if only you'd done something with your life, you know, um, really this is, it's been a pleasure brother, really. And, yeah. um, you got it. You got a beer and a, and a coffee and, uh, who knows what plate of omelets waiting for you when you come to the, to Hudson Valley. I can't um, wait. I can't, I didn't know you were so close pleasure. to Newburgh. That's we're be right fun. there. We're right there. Man. Oh. Yeah. I'll give you the nickel tour. And uh, so cool. yeah, hey, stay in touch. Um, this has been a delight. Let's talk again soon. It's It's been great to chat with you. And like I said, you know, I, I haven't talked about these things in this depth. So thanks for digging. It's been a pleasure. It's been too easy to dig. I mean, it's just, this stuff is right there begging for it. It's, as you said, I mean, you you come in with the, with a pitch that very few people can match. When Once you put Marine, Machine Gunner, and Dancer in the same sentence, I mean, it, the questions just naturally spool out from there. So, um, been a pleasure, man. And thanks for being so generous with your time to talk it through. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a pleasure here, too. So, that was the savage wonder of Roman Baca. You got both parts. So, if you missed part one, by all means, go back and listen to it. But that concludes our time with Roman for now. You've been listening to Savage Wonder, the podcast for warriors and artists and a production of the Veterans Repertory Theater. The opinions expressed do not represent anything or anyone other than the speaker. Check out what's going on with us at vetrep.org. And if you like the written word, if you love reading fiction, poetry, or creative nonfiction, subscribe to the Savage Wonder Literary Blog, which you can find at savagewonder.substack.com or just go to vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. Again, that's vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing. And you can subscribe to this podcast at savagewonder.podbean.com or at vetrep.org backslash now hyphen playing or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you're listening to us on iTunes, go ahead and leave us a five-star review. You can say whatever you want to us. We welcome your constructive criticism or any kind of feedback. But if you could attach it to a five-star review, that would be outstanding. We welcome all your feedback. And please give us a follow at Veterans Repertory Theater Again, at Veterans Repertory Theater on both Facebook 
and Instagram. And I know nobody knows how to spell repertory. It's okay. I'll spell it here. It's at Veterans Repertory, R-E-P-E-R-T-O-R-Y, Theater. And that's the American spelling E-R, not R-E. So at Veterans Repertory Theater on both Instagram and Facebook or on Twitter, you can follow us at Vet Rep Theater. And if you want to submit your work to Veterans Repertory Theater or to our literary blog, please go to vetrep.org backslash submissions. As always, thanks to our producer, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of the Veterans Repertory Theater. See you next time when we'll dive further into the savage wonder of it all.